Chapter thirty three of Agnes Sorrel by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three. A few miles from the strong town of Bourg, on the summit of a considerable elevation, was a chateau or castle, even then showing some signs of antiquity. It was not a very large and magnificent dwelling, consisting merely of the outer walls with their flanking towers, one tall square tower and one great mass stretching out into the port, and rising to the height of two stories. In a small, plain chamber, containing everything useful and convenient, but nothing very ornamental, sat a young gentleman of three or four-and-twenty years of age, covered with a corselet and back-piece, but with his head and limbs bare of armour. Two men, however, were busily engaged, fitting upon him the iron panoply of war. One was kneeling at his feet, fastening the greaves upon his legs. The other stood behind, attaching the pauldrons and pallets. On a table hard by stood a casque and plume, beside which lay the gauntlets, the shield, and the sword. And near the table stood a lady, somewhat past the middle age, gazing gravely and anxiously at the young man's countenance. But there was still another person in the room. A young girl of some six or seven years of age had climbed up upon the gentleman's knee, and was making a necklace for him of her arms, while ever and anon she kissed him tenderly. "'You must come back, Jean, you must come back,' she said, "'though dear mother says perhaps you may never come back. You must not leave your own little Agnes. What would she do without you?' Jean Charost embraced her warmly, but he did not speak for there were many emotions in his heart which he feared might make his voice tremble few who had seen him six or seven years before would have recognised in that tall powerful young man the slim graceful lad who was secretary to the unfortunate duke of orleans nor was the change perhaps less in his mind than in his person for although he was of that character which changes slowly yet all characters change the oak requires a hundred years the willow hardly twenty, and as one layer or circle grows upon another in the heart of the tree, so do new feelings come over man's spirit as he advances from youth to age. Each epoch in human life has the things pertaining to itself. A boy can never divine what the man will feel. The man too little recollects what were the feelings of the boy. However, the change in Jean Charost, in consequence of the circumstances in which he had been placed, was somewhat different from that which might have been expected. He had become tenderer rather than harder in the last seven years, more flexible rather than more rigid. Till between seventeen and eighteen years of age, hard necessities, constant application, the everlasting dealing with material things, the guard which he had been continually forced to put upon himself, knowing that not only his own future fate might be darkened, but the happiness and deliverance of a parent might be lost by one false step, had all tended to give him an unyouthful sternness of principle and of demeanour, which had perhaps saved him from many evils, but had deprived him of much innocent enjoyment. Since the death of the Duke of Orléans, however, acting altogether as his own master, seeing more of the general world, and with his mind relieved from the oppressive cares and anxieties which may be said to have frozen his youth he had warmed as it were in the sunshine 
and all the more gentle things of the heart had come forth and blossomed. I know not whether the love of that dear, beautiful child had not greatly aided the change, whether his tenderness for her, and her adoring fondness for him, had not called out emotions, natural but latent, and affections which only wanted something to cling round. Whenever he returned from any of the scenes of strife and trouble in which he embarked with the rest, one of his first thoughts was of Agnes. When he approached the gates of the old castle, his eyes were always lifted to see her coming to meet him. When he sought a time of repose in the plain and unadorned halls of his father, no gorgeous tapestry, no gilded ceiling, no painted gallery could have ornamented the place so well as the smiles of that sweet young face. The balmy influence of innocent childhood was felt by him very strongly. He was very indulgent toward her. His mother said he spoiled her. But he was used to laugh joyfully and declare that nothing could spoil his little Agnes. And, in truth, with him she was ever gentle and docile, seeming to love obedience to his lightest word. And now he was going to leave her, to leave all he held most dear in life for a long much, for a fierce strife, for a struggle on which the fate of France depended. He was not without hope, he was not without confidence, but if almost all men feel some shade of dread when parting from a well-beloved home on any ordinary occasion, if a chilling conviction of the dreary uncertainty of all earthly things comes upon them even, what must have been his sensations when he thought of all that might happen between the hours of parting and returning? But the trumpet had sounded throughout the land. Every well-wisher of his country was called upon to forget his domestic ties and selfish interests and private quarrels, and armed to repel an invader. The appeal was to the hearts of all Frenchmen, and he must go. Nay, more, he had taxed his utmost means, he had mortgaged the very bequest of the Duke of Orléans, he had done everything but impoverish his mother, in order to carry with him as many men as possible to swell the hosts of France. The last piece of his armour was buckled on, Martin Grille took up the cask, a cup of wine was brought, and Jean Charost embraced his mother and the child. "'How hard your breast is, Jean,' said the little girl. "'None too hard,' said the mother. "'God be your shield, my son. He is better than sword or buckler.' "'Amen,' said Jean Charost, and left them. "'Now let us change the scene once more, for this must be a chapter of changes.' Stand upon this little hill with me, beside the great oak, and let us look on, as day breaks over the fair scene below us. See how beautifully the land slopes away, there on the north, with the wooded heights near Blangy, and the church steeple on the rise of the hill, and the old castle hard by. How the light catches upon it, even before the day is fully risen. Even that piece of marshy ground, sloping gently up into a meadow with a deep ditch cut here and there across it, acquires something like beauty from the purple light of the rising sun. There is a little coppice there to the westward, with a windmill, somewhat like that at Crecy, waving its slow arms on the gentle morning breeze. How peaceful it all looks! How calm! Can this narrow space, this tranquil scene, be the spot on which the destiny of a great kingdom is to be decided in an hour?
So, perhaps, thought a man placed upon the hill near Blangy, as he looked in the direction of Azincourt, one half of the steeple of which could be seen rising over the slope. Soon, however, that quiet scene became full of life. He saw a small body of some two hundred men run rapidly along under cover of the coppice, bending their heads with no apparent arms except what seemed an axe slung upon the shoulder of each. They carried long, slim wands in their hands, it is true, but to the eyes those wands were very unserviceable weapons. They reached the edge of a ditch upon the meadow, and there they disappeared. A loud flourish of martial music followed, and soon after, from behind the wood, came on, in steady array, a small body of soldiery. They could not have numbered more than one or two thousand men at the very most, and little like soldiers did they look, except in the even firmness of their line. There was no glittering steel to be seen. Casque and corselet, spear and banner were not there. Not even the foot-soldiers Jack and Morion could be described among them. But tattered, travel-worn, and many of them bareheaded, they advanced, with heavy tramp and steady countenance, in the same direction which had been taken by the others. The same long wands were in their hands, and each bore upon his shoulder a heavy steel-pointed post, while a short sword or axe hung upon the thigh and a well-stored quiver was within reach of the right hand. Before them rode a knight on horseback, with a truncheon in his hand, and behind them still, as they marched on, sounded the war-stirring trumpet. The face of the man who stood there and watched was very pale, either with fear or some other emotion, and every now and then he approached a tree to which three horses were tied, one of which was fully caparisoned for war, examined the bridles, and saw that all was right, as if he were anxious that everything should be ready, either for strife or flight. While he was thus employed, two other men came up, slowly climbing the hill from the eastward, but there was nothing in the appearance of either to give any alarm to him who was watching there. The one was a round, short personage, with a countenance on which nature had stamped cheerful good humour, though his eyes had now in them an expression of wild anxiety which showed that he knew what scene was about to be enacted below the other was a tall gaunt man far past the middle age but his face betrayed no emotion it was still and pale as that of death and changed not even after they had reached a point where the whole array of the field was set out before them his brow however wore a heavy frown but that expression seemed habitual and not produced by any transitory feeling. Both the strangers were habited in the long grey gown of the monk, with a girdle of plain cord and the string of beads attached, besides which the elder man carried in his hand a staff and a large ebony crucifix. The moment their heads rose above the slope so that they could see over into the plain beyond, the younger and the stouter man stopped suddenly with a look of some alarm, as if the moving mass of soldiery had been close to him. "'Jesus Maria!' he exclaimed. "'Are those the English, Brother Albert? I did not know they were half so near.' The other answered nothing, and his countenance changed not while his eye ran over the whole country beneath him, with the calm, deliberate, marking look of a man who had beheld such scenes before. 
Suddenly, on the right, over the tops of the trees, rose up a dense cloud of smoke, which, rolling in large volumes into the air, became tinged with a dark red hue, and speckled with sparks of fire. "'What is that? What is that?' cried the younger monk. "'That must be some place on fire at Aubin.' "'No, no,' replied the other, speaking for the first time. "'That is much nearer. It is either at Teneur, or at the farm of our priory of St. George. Can the English king have thrown out his right wing so far in order to take our army on the flank? If so, one charge would ruin him. But no, he is too wise for that. It must be a stratagem to deceive the constable. As he spoke, the first comer moved away from the horses and joined them, saying, God help us, this is a terrible scene, good fathers. The elder monk gazed at him with his motionless countenance, but answered nothing, and the younger one replied, much in his own tone, A terrible scene indeed, my son, a terrible scene indeed. I know not whether it will be more so to stand as a mere spectator and witness such a sight as will soon be before us, or to mingle in the fray and lose part of its horrors by sharing in its fury. Oh, I have no doubt which, answered the other. My mind is quite made up on that subject. You may be a man of war, replied the other. Indeed, these armed horses seem to speak it. No, I am a man of peace, rejoined the first comer. Those horses are my master's, not mine, and the fighting is his too. But he knows my infirmity and leaves me here out of arrow shot. The boy who was with me has run down the hill to be nearer to our lord, but I, as in duty bound, stay where he placed me i should like very much to know however what is the name of that farmhouse and the two or three cottages there at the edge of the meadow with the deep ditch across it that is called tramacor replied the younger monk it is but a small hamlet and i heard this morning that our riotous soldiers had driven all the people out of it and eaten up all their stores why do you ask my son because I saw but now some two or three hundred men coming from the side of Blangy, run down by the willows there and disappear in the ditch. God's retribution, said the elder monk gravely. Had not the soldiery driven out the peasantry, there would have been men to bear the news of the ambush. Think you it is an ambush, then? asked the younger monk. Beyond doubt, replied the other. And he who would do a good service to the army of France would mount yon horse, right down toward Azincourt, and carry the tidings to the constable. As he spoke, he fixed his eyes upon their lay companion, who seemed a little uneasy under their gaze. He fidgeted, pulled the points of his doublet, and then said sturdily, Well, I cannot go. I must stay with the horses. Are you a coward? asked the elder monk in a low, bitter tone. Yes, replied the man nonchalantly. I am a desperate coward have been so all my life i have a reverent regard for my own skin and no fondness for carving that of other people if men have a peculiar fancy for poking holes in each other's bodies i do not quarrel with them for it indeed i do not quarrel with any one for anything but it is not my taste it is not my trade why should i make eyelet holes in nature's jerkin or have myself bored through and through like a piece of timber under an auger well, my son, wilt thou let me have a horse that I may ride down and tell the constable? asked the shorter of his two companions. 
there is hardly time said the elder monk see here comes a larger body of archers from the side of blangy and i can catch lance heads and banners rising up in Azincourt. the bloody work will soon begin i would fain try at all events cried the other man wilt thou let me have a horse i will bring him back to thee in half an hour if ever i come back alive myself take him take him answered the other i am not the man to stop you how could i resist two monks and three horses not the destroyer not the battle horse that is my lord's here take the pages let me help thee on father thou art so fat in the nether end that thou wilt never get up without a ladder one time i was as bad a horseman as thyself and so i have compassion on thy foibles have thou some upon mine the monk was soon settled in the saddle and away he went down the hill showing himself a better horseman when once mounted than the other had given him credit for as soon as he was gone the elder monk fixed his eyes once more upon his companion and said in a low voice have i not seen thee somewhere before i can't tell answered the other i have seen you i fancy but if so you you gave no sign of seeing me either by word or look however i am martin grille the valet of the good baron de bracy perhaps that may give your memory a step to climb upon it needs no step replied the other i am all memory would to god i were not ay now you look more as you did then though not half so mad either said martin grille you are older too and your cowl makes a difference and there is a difference replied the monk in a tone of deep sadness penitence and prayer remorse and anguish sated revenge perhaps a thirst assuaged a thirst such as no desert traveller ever knew quenched in blood and tears all these have changed me the fire has gone out i am nothing but the ashes of my former self rather hot ashes even yet answered martin grille if i may judge by what you said about my cowardice just now but look look good father what will become of our fat brother there why he is riding right before that strong body of lances coming up from blangy he does not see them answered the other gravely he may reach the constable even yet for lo now there comes the power of france over the hill and england on to meet her by the holy rood they make a gallant show these great noblemen of france why what a sea of archery and, and men-at-arms is there with plumes and banners lance and shield and pennons numberless i have seen many a stricken fight and never but at poitiers saw fairer array than that why they will sweep the english from the face of the earth said martin grille if that be all king henry's power it is but a morsel for the more of such a monster as is coming down from Azincourt. The monk turned toward him and shook his head. You know not these Englishmen, he said with a sigh. When brought to bay, they fight like wolves. I have heard my father tell of Crecy, and at Poitiers I was a page. On each field we outnumbered them as here, and at Poitiers we might have had them on composition, had it pleased the king. But we forced them to fight, and fight they did, till the multitude fled before a handful and order and discipline did what neither numbers nor courage could effect look you now how skilfully this english king has chosen his place of battle unassailable on either flank showing a narrow front to his enemy so as to render numbers of no avail god send that they may not prove destructive ah he is too late 
replied Martin Grille, who had been watching the course of the other monk, who was riding straight toward the head of the ditch, where he had seen the archers conceal themselves. He is too late, I fear. His exclamation was caused by sudden movements observable in both armies. The English force had been advancing slowly in three bodies, each looking but a handful, as compared with the immense forces of France, but in firm and close array, with little of that ornament and decoration which gilds and smooths the rugged reality of war, but with many instruments of music playing martial airs, and seeming to speak of hopeful confidence. The French, on the other hand, who had lain quiet all the morning, as if intending to wait the attack of the enemy, had just spread out upon the sloping face of Azincourt, divided likewise into three vast bodies, with their wings overlapping on either side, the flank of the English force. Splendid arms and glittering accoutrements made the whole line shine and sparkle, but not a sound was heard from among them, except now and then the shout of a commander. At the moment of Martin Grille's exclamation, the advance guard of the French had assumed a quicker pace, and were pouring down upon the English archery, as they marched up through a somewhat narrow space, enclosed between low, thick copse, hedges, and swampy ground. This narrow field forked out gradually, becoming wider and wider toward the centre of the French host, and the English had just reached what we may call the mouth of the fork with nearly fifteen thousand French men-at-arms and archers before them, under the command of the constable in person. Slowly and steadily the Englishmen marched on, till within half-bowshot of the French line, headed by old Sir Thomas of Erpingham, who rode some twenty yards before the archery, with a page on either side, and nothing but a baton in his hand. When near enough to render every arrow certain of its mark, the old knight waved his truncheon in the air, and instantly the whole body of foot halted short. At the same moment each man planted before him the spiked stake which he carried in his hand, and laid an arrow on the string of his bow. A dead silence prevailed along each line, unbroken except by the tramp of the advancing French. Sir Thomas of Erpingham looked along the line, from right to left, and then exclaimed in a loud, powerful voice, Now strike! throwing his truncheon high into the air, and dismounting from his horse. Instantly from the ditch on the left flank of the French rose up the concealed archers, with bows already drawn, and well might Martin Grille exclaim that the monk was too late. The next instant, from one end of the English line to the other, ran the tremendous cheer which has so often been the herald of victory over land and sea, and the next, a flight of arrows as thick as hail, poured right into the faces of the charging enemy. Knights and squires and men-at-arms bowed their heads to the saddle-bow to avoid the shafts, but on they still rushed, each man directing his horse straight against the narrow front of the English, and pressing closer and closer together, so as to present one compact mass, upon which each arrow told. Nor did that fatal flight cease for an instant. Hardly was one shaft delivered before another was upon the string, and mad with pain the horses of the French cavalry reared and plunged among the crowd, creating as much destruction and disarray as even the missiles of their foe. All then became a scene of strange confusion to the eyes of Martin Grille. The two opposing forces seemed mingled together. The English, he thought, were forced back, 
but their order seemed firmer than that of the French line, where all was struggling and disarray. Here and there a small space in one part of the field would become comparatively clear, and then he would see a knight or squire dragged from his horse, and an archer driving the point of his sword between the bars of his helmet. The figure of the monk was no longer to be discerned, for he had long been enveloped in the various masses of light cavalry and camp followers which whirled around the wings of the French army, of little or no service in the battle to those whom they served, and only formidable to an enemy in case of his defeat. The monk, who stood beside Martin Grille, remained profoundly silent, though his companion often turned his eye toward him with an inquiring look, as if he would fain have asked, How think you? goes the strife. But though no words were uttered, many were the emotions which passed over his countenance. At first all was calm, although there was a straining of the eye beneath the bent brow like that of the eagle gazing down from its rocky eyrie on to the prey moving across the plain below. Then came a glance of triumph as some two or three hundred of the French men-at-arms dashed on before their companions, and hurled themselves upon the English line, in the vain effort to break the firm array of the archery. But when he saw the troops mingling together, and the heavy pressure of the French chivalry, one upon the other, each impeding his neighbour, and leaving no room for any one but those in the front rank to strike a blow, his brow grew dark, his eye anxious, and his lip quivered. For a moment more he continued silent, but then when he saw the English arrows dropping among the ranks of his countrymen, the horses rearing and falling with their riders, to be trampled under the feet of those who pressed around, some maddened with pain, tearing through all that opposed them, and carrying terror and confusion into the main body behind, some urged by fearful riders at the full gallop, from a field which they fancied lost, because it was not instantly won. He could bear no more, but exclaimed sharply and sternly, They will lose the day. But all that vast number coming down the hill have not yet struck a stroke, cried Martin Grille. Where can they strike? said the monk sternly. Were the field cleared of their friends, they might yet do something with their foes. See, the banner of Alençon is down. And where is that of Brabant? I see it no more. He gazed for a moment more, and then exclaimed, Oh, my life, they are flying, flying right into the centre of the main battle, to carry the infection of their fear with them. As he spoke, two or three horsemen, in mad haste, galloped up the hill directly toward them, and Martin Grille sprang to the side of the horses, unfastened one of them, and put his foot in the stirrup. Fool, they will not hurt thee, said the monk. "'Tis their own lives they seek to save.' "'And stretching out his arm across the path "'by which the men-at-arms were coming, "'he exclaimed fiercely, "'Cowards! Cowards! Back to the battle for very shame!' "'But they galloped on past him, "'one with an arrow through his shoulder "'and one with the crest of his casque completely shorn off. "'The third struck a blow with a mace at the monk as he passed, "'but it narrowly missed him, "'and on he too rode.' with a bitter curse upon his lips. By this time it was no longer doubtful which way the strife would go between the advance guard of the French and that of the English army. The former was all in disarray, and parties scattering away from it every instant, while the latter was advancing steadily, 
supported by a large body of pikes and billmen, who now appeared in steady order from behind some of the tall trees of the wood. Just then, through the bushes which lay scattered over the bottom of the slope, a group was seen coming up the hill, so slowly that their progress could hardly be called flight. At first neither Martin Grille nor the monk could clearly perceive what they were doing, for the branches, covered with thin, dry October leaves, partly intercepted the view. Soon, however, they emerged upon more open ground, and three or four men on foot appeared, closely surrounding a caparisoned horse, which one of them led by the bridle, while another, walking by the stirrup, seemed to have his arm around the waist of the rider. An instant after, a mounted man in a grey gown appeared from among the bushes, paused by the side of the little party, and was seen pointing upward toward the hill. "'Brother Albert and a wounded knight,' said the monk, taking a step or two forward. "'Good Lord, I hope it is not my young master,' cried Martin Grille, clasping his hands together. "'Oh, if he would but stay at home and keep quiet, I'm sure his mother would bless the day.' The monk hardly listened to him, for he was gazing with an eager and anxious look upon the group below. Then, suddenly turning to the varlet, he asked, in a sharp, quick tone, "'Has thy young lord any children?' "'None of his own,' answered Martin Grille, "'but one whom he has adopted, a fairy little creature, as beautiful as a sunbeam, whom they call Agnes. He could not love her better, were she his own.' "'God will bless him yet,' said the monk, and then added sharply, "'Why stand you there? It is your lord. Go down and help.' And he himself hurried down the slope to meet the advancing party. With his cask cleft open by an axe, an arrow through his right arm, a spear-hole in his cuirass, and the blood dropping over his coat of arms, Jean Charost, supported by one of his retainers, on whose shoulder his head rested, was borne slowly up the hill. His face could not be seen, for his visor was closed, but there was an expression of deep sadness in the faces of the two or three men who surrounded him, which showed that they thought the worst had befallen. "'Is he dead?' asked the old monk, looking at the man who led the horse. "'I can't tell, father,' replied the soldier, gruffly. "'He has not spoken since we got him out of the fray. "'Here is one who has done his duty, however. "'Oh, if they had all fought as he did!' "'I think he is not dead,' said the other monk, riding up. "'You see, his hand is still clasped upon the rein, "'and once, I thought, he tried to raise his head. "'Bear him on, bear him on behind the trees.' cried the older man, and get the horses out of sight. He is not dead, his hand moves. How goes it, my son, how goes it? Be of good cheer. A low groan was the only reply, but that was sign sufficient that life was not extinct, and Jean Charost was carried gently forward to a spot behind the trees, well concealed from the field of battle. The old monk, before he followed, paused to take one more look at the bloody plain of Azincourt. By this time the main body of the French army was in as great disorder as the advanced guard, while the English forces were making way steadily with the royal banner floating in the air. "'All is lost,' murmured the monk. "'God help them. They have cast away a great victory.' When he reached the little spot to which Jean Charost had been carried, the men were lifting him gently from his horse and laying him down on the dry autumnal grass. His cask was soon removed, but his eyes were closed, and his breathing was slow and uneven. 
there was a deep cut upon his head but that which seemed robbing him of life was the lance wound in his chest and with hurried hands the two monks unclasped the cuirass and back piece and applied themselves to staunch the blood it has gone very near his heart said the elder monk no no replied the other it is too far to the side you understand fighting better than i brother albert but i know more surgery than you here hold your hand firmly here one of you men and give me up that scarf some one run down to the brook and get water take his bassinet take his bassinet we must call him out of this swoon before it is too late martin grille seized up his master's casque and impulsively ran away toward the brook which took its rise about two-thirds of the way down the hill when he came in sight of the battlefield however he stopped suddenly short with all his old terrors rushing upon him at the next instant love for his young lord overcame all other sensations and he plunged desperately down the slope and filled the bassinet at the fountain help me martin help me said a voice near and looking up he saw the young page who had followed his lord down the hill here boy come along cried martin grille what are you hurt you young fool yes sorely replied the boy while trying to cover the baron the first time he was thrown from his horse they hacked me with their swords but i shall never see him again he is dead now give me your hand give me your hand cried martin grille he is not dead so take good heart but i must hurry back with this water so put forth what strength you have left dragging the page along with one hand and holding the bassinet in the other martin contrived to climb the hill again and reached the spot where de bracy lay the younger monk immediately took a handful of the water and dashed it in the wounded man's face a shudder passed over him and then he opened his eyes and looked faintly round now some drops of this sovereign balsam said the younger monk taking a vial from his pocket open your lips my son and let me drop it in he had to repeat his words before the wounded man comprehended them but when the drops had been administered a great change took place very rapidly the light came back into jean charost's eyes and he said though faintly where am i who has won how goes it my son how goes it asked the elder monk bending over him with his cowl thrown back but feebly father answered jean charost ah, is that you even so answered the monk but cheer up you shall not die we will take you to our priory of st george of hesta and soon give you health again alas said jean charost raising his hand feebly and letting it drop again i have no strength to move but how goes the battle if france have lost let me lie here and die we cannot tell answered the younger monk the battle still rages fiercely here hold this crucifix in your hand and let me examine the wound tis not bleeding so fast he continued take some more of these drops they will give you strength again ah perrault poor boy said jean charost suffering his eyes to glance feebly round till they rested upon the page who was leaning against a tree attend to him good father he must be wounded sorely he saved my life when first i was dashed down by that blow upon my head take this first yourself rejoined the monk or the master will go where the page will not like to follow 
Jean Charas made no resistance, and the monk then turned to the young boy, examined and bound up his wounds, and administered to him likewise some of the elixir in which he seemed to put so much faith. Nor did it seem undeserving of his good opinion, for again the effect upon Jean Charas was very great, and he said in a stronger voice, Methinks I shall live. Can we not contrive to make some litter? said the elder monk, looking to the men who had aided their young lord up the hill. We will try, said one of them, and taking an axe which hung upon his shoulder, he began to cut down some of the sapling trees. Ere the materials were collected, however, to make a litter, there came a sound of horses' feet going at a slow trot, and an instant after a small party of horse appeared. Ha! Who have we here? cried the man at their head. A French knight, wounded. God save you, sir, I trust you will do well. But you must surrender, rescue or no rescue, and give your faith thereon. As he spoke, he dismounted and approached the little group, holding out his hand to Jean Charost. There is no help for it, answered the wounded man, giving him his hand. Rescue or no rescue, I do surrender. Your name is the next thing, replied the English officer. Jean Charost, Baron de Bracy replied the young man i pray you tell me how goes the battle it is over sir answered the englishman god has pleased to bless our arms your men will surrender of course with them too there was no help for it as there were some twenty or thirty spears around them and when they had given their pledge the officer an elderly man turned again to jean charost saying in a kindly tone you are badly hurt sir and i am sure have done your devoir Write nightly for your king and country. I cannot stay to tend you, but these good fathers will have gentle care of you, I am sure. When you are well, inquire for the Lord Willoughby. You will not find him hard to deal with. The parole of a gentleman with such wounds as these is worth prison bars of three-inch thickness. And thus saying, he remounted his horse and rode away. End of chapter 33